Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. All right, everyone, on our ninth episode, we have a highly anticipated and highly requested maverick within the field of behavior analysis. As the starter of the Instagram account ABA Mentorship, Amanda has taken to sharing not only her opinions about popular trends within the field, but debunking common theories that many have clung tightly onto. Please help me in welcoming Amanda to Unorthodox. Amanda, welcome. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Love the the subtle hello. We are actually going to do for the first time in today's episode something a little bit different where Amanda and I will devote the full episode to a round robin style answering of your guys' questions. And if we (laughs) hardcore, if we get through all of them, then Amanda, you could probably talk a little bit about maybe some questions that you get outside of what were submitted. Oh, this is going to be fun. I'm, I'm excited. I am too. Speaking of excitement, this first question is one that I believe you and me have spoken quite a bit about for those of us that are not within the field of behavior analysis or not entirely connected to it, eye contact used to or currently is considered something that could be harmful to the autistic population. Amanda, the people want to know, do you believe eye contact is harmful? Absolutely not. (laughs) I agree, but I would like for you to elaborate as to the absolutely not. Um, Okay, so... Just like anything, and as my video cast and future podcast is labeled, mm-hmm. we know we love labels, it depends. <laughs> it depends. Like, I don't think eye contact in and of itself is dangerous or harmful. Mm-hmm. I think the manner in which people teach it because it's outside their scope and their competence is what is the problem. And that is true for not just eye contact, but a lot of things that are going on in our field. If you are not adequately trained to implement these procedures and you don't know how to teach it, please stop and do not venture to do so. That's what is causing the issues and the harm in our field more than anything, I believe. So like eye contact, I think to say blanket, absolute overgeneralization that for every single person on the spectrum, It is harmful, abusive, traumatic, I'm throwing up air quotes, Mm -hmm. um, or dangerous to teach um, is an ableist comment if we want to throw labels out. Mm -hmm. I'm happy you brought that up because ableism is also something that is really elusive and the, the definition of it seems to change a lot. So what is your interpretation of ableism and how does it relate to the eye contact goal? Well, what you were just saying is part of the problem. People love to confirm their own bias. They Mm -hmm. will comb through anything and find something to support their argument. Mm -hmm. Um, That is what English majors are for. That is not... (laughs) I I am an English major. Like I have a bachelor's in English literature, but 
you don't read between the lines. It's mm-hmm. science. Right. Like you don't project your own feelings about something or your opinions about something onto a child or a learner because it's not about you. Mm-hmm. And if you're incapable of pulling yourself and your own thoughts on something out of the equation, then you should not be a clinician treating people. You just shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So with eye contact, I think a lot of the resistance, as we've heard and seen, comes from the really inappropriate and almost overly contrived teachings of it, where we grab someone's face and stare into their soul, the mile long stare, which obviously is completely socially inappropriate. Yeah. But then there comes the, the counter argument of if it's painful to the autistic community, then you should not have them go through it or persist through it at all. What are your thoughts on that? There's so much going on there, Kayla. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's just my whole issue, as you know, is just the overgeneralization of everything. Just because mm-hmm. a small portion of the autism community who is capable of coming out and dialoguing and giving people anecdotal data from their treatment, mm-hmm. um, to say that your experience is everybody's experience is, is just, it's not correct. Mm-hmm. We cannot use anecdotal data as, as fact. We just can't. Mm-hmm. If anybody who's listening was at the FABA conference, I think Dr. Gina Green said it really, really well. I mean, she said, and I'm just going to read it right quick, popularity does not equal proof. Enthusiasm isn't evidence. And the plural of anecdotal is not data. So, I love that. It's you got to stop and step back. And if you're incapable of doing that, again, please do not be a clinician in this field. Go do something else. Go be go be a parent and inflict them with your views. Do that. Mm-hmm. But it would don't make more that. sense. Yeah. What does appropriate targeting of eye contact look like? Using reinforcement. Um, I mean we use a lot of what we call looking temptations. So we'll go ready, set. And then if the learner orients towards us on go, we make something really fun and reinforcing happen. So, you know, that could be, say it's a one-year-old. We'll do it with a light up toy. We'll do it with, um, I got something on my head and it falls off something silly and developmentally appropriate. Um, I think too often people, are assuming that something is a reinforcer or they are relying on things that are extremely difficult to fade out. So we need to make it more intrinsically motivating and we need to make it fun. You know, I have listened in your previous, or I think it was episode one of your podcast where you were talking about 40 hours. That's a little bit much. Mm -hmm. Now it is a little bit much if you're doing rote, rigid, conventional ABA, mm-hmm. where it looks like you're just drilling kids with pictures and bringing one-year-olds to the table with escape extinction. Right. Sure, that is too much. But if you mm-hmm. are playful, you get down on their level and you're being developmentally appropriate and putting on your weird, silly hat, 40 hours is extremely meaningful. And if they weren't with you, guess where they're going to be? They're either going to be at home with Mm -hmm. their parent doing nearly the same thing, interacting one-on-one with an adult human, or they're going to be in daycare for more than the same amount of hours. Right. Well, that's a good perspective. So why not make it, 
meaningful, playful, developmentally appropriate. I think that's a whole, you and I have a lot of psychological teaching in our background. Mm -hmm. We take a different perspective than a lot of the newer clinicians in our field, which as we know, makes up a significant portion of the population. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's missing from people's training is like they need that psychological developmental background to be able to effectively treat and disseminate the science. Do you think ABA should have remained just a branch of psychology instead of kind of becoming its own science? I mean, isn't everything a branch of psychology if it requires a psychological diagnostician to to get it that diagnosis? It could be. I think maybe stated differently, there should be more psychological and developmental theories and principles interwoven into the ABA curriculum because what it is now, it's you could finish in 11 months, your quote unquote supervision could be done in 12 months, and all of a sudden you're responsible for working with really complex cases. <laughs> don't don't put me on another tangent here. <laughs> uh, that's why we're here, Amanda. <laughs> I mean, that is the huge shift that I've seen over the course of the last 12 years. I can only mm -hmm. speak to the last 12 years. Before that, I had no clue that this was even a thing. So yeah. when I first started out, like I worked in private practice where, you know, like insurance wasn't widely accepted. It wasn't approved by Medicaid. You know, Lori Unum worked very hard to get that done. It's a catch-22 situation because on one hand, kids are getting access when they otherwise wouldn't. But on the other hand, treatment quality has gone way down because our services, for the most part, at least within the realm of autism, um, it's all billable. Um, so training and supervision is not at the forefront anymore. Instead, training, air quotes again, um, consists of writing a thorough insurance approved progress note so that the company doesn't lose money because that's what they want to invest in. So I think training and supervision and the importance of that has gone to the wayside. Um, that's a huge problem. People now are like cult religious about the task list. Um, the task list is just a task list for a test. The test doesn't mean shit. So we need to stop, you know, putting balloons behind ourselves and taking <laughs> photographs and wearing socks that say, yay, I passed my test. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy for you that you passed it, but I'm happy for you being happy for yourself, if that's what makes you happy. Sure. However, I'm not happy for your clients if you're not adequately prepared for that role. Which is actually, this is a really great segue into one of the questions specifically for you, Amanda, because you've spoken about this, especially recently, is the fact that the test really only covers, and I think the 20% is actually being generous, that the test only covers about 20% of what needs to be known and um, mastered to fluency to be an effective clinician. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. It is generous. I was just quoting a guy who spoke at, at FABA again, where yeah. it's just, it's not a Bible friends. Like it's not a Bible. It's not everything you need to know. Quite frankly, um, when you're practicing clinically and you're not on the research side, a good portion of that 20% 
you're never going to fucking use. So yeah, it, like half of the stuff that you sit there and you drill yourself with SAF med cards about, you're never going to need to know. Because nothing requires you to respond within an instant. And I would think that, sure, there will be things that we're really fluent in that we're able to respond quickly to. But for the most part, it's not expected that these just really simple definitional concepts are going to be at the core of working with people. Well, my concern is, are you fluent at clinical judgment? That's my concern. And are if you the, fluent at critical well, thought? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, can you make reasonable choices in the moment um, mm -hmm. to support the people that you work with? If not, mm, I don't give a shit about what test you passed. I know several people that work around me that are RBTs and never want to be an analyst because it doesn't mm -hmm. mean shit anymore. People yeah. have ruined that for everybody. Um, all it means is that you can bill and have a big salary, but you're not making a lot of meaningful choices or decisions for your stakeholders or their families. Mm -hmm. So like they are far more advanced and I would trust them to run a case and do parent training and case conceptualize and, and be with that individual and train RBTs to fluency with clinical judgment than I would most of the BCBAs in this field that I have encountered. And it doesn't matter if you're a quote unquote senior analyst um, with five years, 10 years, whatever experience. If you don't know your ass from your elbow when it comes to going into a room and training and supervising people or having soft skills to talk to a parent in a way that isn't judgy or putting more anxiety on them, then nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't. Do you think the extreme allergy to wanting to do parent training and talking to parents is evident that this field might, the training to be in this field might be in the wrong direction? A thousand percent. Our entire purpose is to work ourselves out of a job and to have parents take over. So if you're skipping parent training or you don't know how to parent train, uh, then I don't know what the fuck you're doing. Yeah. And what's scary too is that I never see any... I don't see parent training built into any coursework. I rarely see parent training at the, the, the core of supervision. And there doesn't seem to be any talk amongst RBTs or BCBAs that that's the most crucial piece of therapy for children, at least. Well, and it's like, you don't get any exposure to it during your supervision if the person that you're allowing to supervise you doesn't parent train. Right. So, right. That, I, you know, I want to, I want to all the time, like give shit to people that take on supervisees when they don't know how to train supervisees or mm -hmm. train parents themselves. Um, but I'm also going to put a lot of the onus on people that are allowing them to sign off just because they want to finish their hours and get, get through it because yeah. your, your head's not in the right place. Do not allow people to do that. Am I fully aware that there are psychotic analysts out there charging an arm and a leg for shit supervision? Yes. Is it hard to find a quality supervisor? Yes. I've been there, done that. But do you want to be okay? Do you want to be good? Or do you want to be fucking excellent? Decide. Mm -hmm. and decide what you're willing to compromise in the process. I agree. I think we just need to, quote unquote, 
do better, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) Don't even start. (laughs) Well, I'm about to start with it. What is your response to the do better mob? I've placed them on extinction. I just don't really give a fuck what they have to say anymore, honestly. Have you ever kind of gotten into one of these debates with anyone from the do better mob? Um, in the beginning, a little bit, but it's the same shit I encountered with Trumpites, you know, like they're not open to a dialogue. They're, they're just having a pissing contest and they want to use every ineffective form of communication. If you know anything about the Gottman method, they want to fucking use the four horsemen all day um, to circumvent taking any kind of responsibility for the misinformation that they're putting out into the world. So I just don't entertain them anymore. I don't. I, I put some post out not too long ago, like a qu- about trauma and stuff mm-hmm. and how um, I, if I went to a therapist, which I, I do, everybody knows that, like mm-hmm. self-care, yay. Yeah, woohoo. <laughs> I go to a therapist to work on communication skills, to work on like my ADHD type stuff and whatever. But like, how effective would it be? And why would I flush money down the toilet if they were like, oh, you know what? Never mind. Let's not work on that. That's hard. That's so hard. We're going to affirm how hard it is, Amanda. Yeah, we're going to affirm how hard it is and we're going to stop. And then we're going to put antecedent methods in place for you to now say, this is tough. I don't want to do it. Oh, Mm -hmm. thank you for telling me you're good. What? That makes no sense. That makes no sense. Like all of us, I think it's ableist. The whole movement is ableist. Like Mm -hmm. I don't even like labels, but I'm going to use people's own labels to label stupid shit that they're doing. Yeah. Because I guess that's the fun game that everybody's doing now. But like to literally say that a learner who is powering through learning to persevere, learning to tolerate and is crying is traumatic for every individual. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying that for some it's not. Okay. Um, But I think we're also forgetting that trauma is subjective. It is not the same for every person. What is traumatic for me. And I have a high threshold of what trauma is in my life because I've seen so much shit is, is different from somebody else's. It's different Mm -hmm. from a person who grew up in a household and had no trauma and grew up in a field and had no trauma and has never been in a traumatic, abusive relationship. Like they might see something a little bit lesser than as extremely traumatic. Whereas I was like, that's no big deal, you know? So we have to like really take a step back and stop overgeneralizing and consider that we're all individuals and these blanket statements that are being made, mm-hmm. um, not even just about autism, right, about generally. everything mm-hmm. is so detrimental because people are now going on Instagram and they're typing in like all kinds of shit to treat themselves instead of seeking a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Parents are getting a diagnosis from a clinical psychologist And they are Googling and seeing some pretty serious shit. Like, I'm honestly surprised that a lot of parents are even choosing to enter into ABA, given the shit out there. 
especially and it's not even the 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 lovas period of time or the skinner period of time that people love to point to as child abuse it's it's the current time and what we're doing now that i think looks far worse than anything skinner or lovas could have done and you're laughing lovas i love having this argument because i got into it uh-huh. I was like, again, it goes back to like cherry picking too. Like right. gonna look through all of his stuff and everything that he said in a completely different time period and find mm-hmm. shit that you find egregious. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, what people are negating is that you wouldn't have a job or a salary if Lovos didn't exist. He's the reason why ABA is covered. Exactly. And, and deemed the only treatment that is helpful for autism. Mm-hmm. So like, stop giving him shit. I don't know if you have seen uh, Bill Burr's stand-up. I'm obsessed with him. But he said something about, like, how are you going to fucking cancel Sean Connery <laughs> after he's already dead? And he right. literally grew up in a time where you were watching silent movies and you would shake the women and be like, get a hold of yourself. Yeah. And- And you're holding him to a a 2022 standard. Like, you just can't do that. You cannot hold Ivor Lovas Lovas, to a standard that we are currently at because Mm -hmm. we have progressed since then and he's not here for it. Right. I mention this often with with surgery. They use cocaine and heroin instead of anesthesia, but we don't write off surgery. All of us that, which Uh, is a large portion. Gail for maiming a bunch of people, but people still go get surgery. Exactly. So it seems very, as you mentioned, this cherry picking form of, well, this looks really bad. And it's also serves to be competing information that proves the opposite. And I think that's at the core of the do better movement. It's all data. Mm -hmm. Everything, whether it's a mishap or whatever it is, it's all data to Mm -hmm. inform how to not do it like that again. So it's just people want to cherry pick and they want to confirm their bias. And I think that, and I had just said, I'm, I'm surprised that parents are still entering into ABA after they Google and see all the shit, because that's the first thing you do. People Mm -hmm. can tell you all day, don't Google and go down that rabbit hole, but they're going to do it late at night when they're stressed out, whatever. Right. Um, But I think the core difference, the people that are entering into it have a healthy amount of doubt and Mm -hmm. or have critical thinking skills and are able to siphon out the bullshit. I think that's another key component that is missed in our, at least our prep programs, like our, our education programs, the people that are going to class to get that baseline knowledge of our science, there needs to be, and there was when I was in school, but that was before like ABA specific master's degrees even existed. I got multiple and severe disabilities with autism, which is probably why I have a whole bunch of shit to pull from. But we had an entire class on like for six months, how to read research. Mm -hmm. And each week it was a different grad student getting up and presenting the research. And we had to present what the limitations are of the Mm -hmm. study not the ones listed in the study, but the limitations we saw so that we could actually read it critically Mm -hmm. and discern whether it's bullshit or not. 
And I think that's a core difference now is that that's not being taught enough. So people at are all. jumping on the bandwagon and adhering to fads very quickly. I, I do recognize that a large population of our field is extremely young. Yes. And, and that I'm going to get shit for too, because well, that's ageist. And just because you're older and antiquated, mm-hmm. I'm 33. I'm not antiquated. I'm just fucking smart. And I know how to read. And I do that because I also have boundaries and don't allow a company to make me bill 50 hours a week. Right. So I actually have time to read. And <laughs> what's also really hard is about the, the grad programs now are almost 100% online. And in these online programs, they're copy and pasted syllabi with these professors and instructors that have also themselves been BCBAs for a year or two. So they're teaching the ethics code by reading verbatim from the ethics code. But there's no room for discussion. There's no room for even playing the devil's advocate. That was one of the biggest pieces of of both of my degrees was learning how to argue for an opposing side so that we didn't become so obsessed with our own point of view. Yes. Have a healthy dialogue. I think everybody, you know, what would be great. We need everybody in this field to just get in a room with a couples therapist because Mm -hmm. everyone needs to learn how to communicate better. I agree. They just do. I mean, this whole, like my perspective is it my way or the highway Um, it's not that type of situation. And you're negating the fact that we need to be highly individualized. Like every single time that a person comes at me like that, I'm like, oh, so I can tell that all your shit's cookie cutter. Like, Mm -hmm. can't wait to see it, you know? Um, And like going back to what we were talking about with even just parent training and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a behavioral artistry, okay? Like, teaching an individual and being one-on-one in the capacity of a direct worker, like an RBT or whatever the fuck you want to call it. I don't care about credentials, but you're working one-on-one with the client. That's an art form. You have to master that first. Right. Conceptualizing how to even treat a case and individualize it. That's another form of artistry. How to highly individualize parent training. Okay, sitting with a parent and saying, what's the function of this behavior? That's fucking stupid. Please stop. Same with all the comments about, have you guys seen any really great parent training curriculums? You shouldn't be using a curriculum to work with a parent of a child. I sure haven't. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) I, I just, it's so rigid now. Mm-hmm. And half the stuff. And I try to be mindful that I had a different experience. I had a very vastly different experience. Not everyone gets the experience that, that I have gotten and I'm grateful for it. But mm-hmm. we, at the risk of sounding like the do better, like we got to do, we do got to do better. And, yeah. but we got to do better in a different way. Mm-hmm. Do better and like, educate thyself. Don't sit around and wait for someone else to do it. Don't just buy in without, you know, getting a full picture. Mm-hmm. We really, 
we really quickly seem to abandon science sometimes when things look really nice or when someone very well known in the field presents something and we don't take the extra step to see, well, just because this person has a PhD and a microphone in their hands, does that necessarily mean that what they're presenting is actually efficacious or not? Yeah. I mean, shit, I don't, I don't consider myself an expert. I don't fucking know anything, but <laughs> like, I know some, you know, like nobody is God here. And, and like, the whole thing is we're all colleagues. I think that's what pisses me off the most. We're all colleagues, yet people are throwing shit at each other and going, ah, mm -hmm. like we're supposed to be on the same team. What the fuck are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's fine to become angry about things and get frustrated. But if we're, if we're colleagues, we should be approaching it from the standpoint of dissecting it versus breaking us into little categories of, you know, neurodiversity affirming or non-compassionate or whatever else. Somebody, because I'm ADHD, right? Okay. As Are you, you a neurodivergent, know, Amanda? Shut up. <laughs> As you can tell by this conversation, we're bouncing all over the place. You're welcome. I did this to ABAAF too. But um, <laughs> I'm like the worst podcast person to interview. Sorry. I'm loving it, Amanda. You're doing great. I, I'm like... Somebody said to me like, oh, so you're neurodivergent. And I'm like, I'm Amanda. Stop exactly. it. Exactly. Great response. Can you stop it? And and that's the other thing is like back when I was in grad school, it was all like person first, say person with autism, individual with autism. And now it's like mm -hmm. a whole faction of people are coming out saying you should call everybody autistics. And I'm like, how about we ask the fucking person what they want? How about right. that? Mm-hmm. The evolving door of language change. How about this person has a cognitive developmental delay and has bigger fish to fry than what the fuck I call them? Mm -hmm. Because that's part, you just brought up a really good point, Amanda, is that a lot of these terminological arguments aren't brought up by the people, of course, that are moderately or severely impacted by a, a disability or a mental illness. It's more about the people that can actually verbally recount their experience and spew how upset they are. Mm -hmm. But to play devil's advocate here, what yeah. might be a reason for the, the wanting to to put your disability or mental illness as part of your identity. Cause it is part of you. It is. If it's, if it's, if it's, I mean, individually speaking, it could be very important to you and it could mm -hmm. be the reason why you do things a certain way. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely is for some people. Um, but I wouldn't at all ever call myself like an ADHD or like some people right. do. Um, and that's up to you. You can call yourself whatever the hell you want. Like no right. our problem lies in people who do not perspective take mm -hmm. and they think that their perspective is the only perspective and people who say, I prefer to be called an ADHD or therefore everyone with ADHD should be called that. That's my problem. Like, mm -hmm. if you prefer to be called autistic, you do you, boo-boo. Like, and I will, <laughs> I will follow your lead on that. But sure. to say that I prefer that label for myself, therefore, 
it's egregious that you're saying individual with autism. Mm -hmm. That that's dangerous because now you're, you're putting too much on the other person. And it's like some people can't say, I prefer this over this. Right. And it gets tricky too, because we can accept ourselves and want to be called whatever we want. You could want to be called Amanda. I could want to be called Kayla, but we can't rely on other people to accept us just because we accept ourselves. So if we have this autism acceptance or mental illness acceptance, we might accept, you might accept that you have ADHD. I'm sure you do. I might accept that I have anxiety. Other people don't have to. And Mm -hmm. other people's lack of acceptance of me also doesn't stop me from doing everything that I need to do. I think that's where I take issue. Well, we're putting too much emphasis on people, external validation. It's like, why do you also like, why do you need somebody to refer to you a certain way? Or why is it so important that people use a certain label when addressing a community? It's like that identitarianism game. Yeah. I don't know. There's so many moving parts. So it's like, again, it depends on like the situation, the diagnosis, or like, is there a diagnosis involved? Because I mean, obviously when we get into race, that's a completely different situation. Like that's different. Absolutely. Um, But it's, it's a tricky sitch. But I think that the danger and where we're all getting into a pissing contest is that it's you against me and that's that versus let's have an open, healthy dialogue where we come to a resolution. Right. While we're on the topic of terminological mishaps, we'll call it that. We won't call it debates. (laughs) What are your thoughts on functioning labels? Okay. Again, it depends. So it depends on... (laughs) the context within which you're using it. It depends on like how you're using it. And it depends on like what your intent behind this is. It also depends on the receiver of the information. Um, Again, you have to highly individualize and like know your audience, but also know what you're trying to achieve by using a label as such. And if you're going to use any kind of label, you need to be using it in a way that like isn't judgy, but is more of I'm trying to express to you that this is a severe deficit. So, I mean, it, de- it also depends on what you mean by the label. So like, are you talking about like the labels that uh, clinical psychologists give on a report because they have to use that language in order for that child to receive a diagnosis per insurance. We have to do the insurance game. There's no way around it. Right. So let's tie in the level one, level two, level three that clinical psychologists use, but also the low versus high functioning label. I think so. I, you know, it depends on your background too, and how knowledgeable you are in using those identifiers. Because if you just look at a kid, let's say you didn't have a stellar training experience and you look at a child and they aren't expressively verbal and you say, well, he's low functioning. Well, that is bullshit Mm -hmm. because I have plenty of learners that don't expressively verbalize, but they're highly receptive to language. So um, they are not low functioning. They just aren't expressive. It's a great point. um, 
it depends on on how you're using it and like whether you have the expertise to even make that judgment because a lot of people in this field don't. I've heard parents refer to their kids using functioning labels and some within the field have taken to correcting parents with the rationale that they can hear you, it's offensive, and it's not, what words do they use, inclusive language. Would you agree or disagree? Is it offensive to your child? How do you know that? (laughs) And how do you know that they're hearing you and taking in that information? I mean, yeah, don't talk about your children in front of them. Right. Yes. Of course. How do you know that that label is offensive to the learner? Did you ask them? Is that something they even care about right this minute? Also, what do you mean when you say that? Right. And also, when you're talking to parents, you got to finesse that. You cannot just go in hard like that because they're they're saying that most often because those are labels that are used in school systems. Those are labels that are used in a lot of the bullshit that's on Facebook and on yeah. whatever, Reddit, all that crap. So they're just going off what they know. Let's not punish parents for not knowing everything. Can we not? Yeah, and also not not turning them into RBTs either. I think that's become a trend that's it just creates this very almost deranged relationship between parent and child when we forcibly try to have them adopt all of the concepts that we know. That well, just that's not fair. I'll tell you what I tell all my parents when my kids start treatment. This is what I say. I say I'm going to give you daily updates. We're going to talk on the regular and we're going to talk at least for 10 minutes minimum each day. What I want you to know is hear what I'm saying because later on this might be something important, but for the most part, let us do the heavy lifting and let your child have respite in the home. Your job is not just being a parent. I don't also want to give you the job of therapist You are also an employee. You are a wife or husband. Mm -hmm. You are a human being where your only identity is not wrapped up in your child. So it would be silly of me to hand you a whole list of things that I expect you to do when you get home. Your child has done a ton of really difficult stuff today allow them to go home and be a part of your family. You don't need to be an RBT there right now. So I preface that because I've had parents who are like super, super like, you know, Mm -hmm. which is awesome, but they've gone home and they've tried to replicate and now they internalize. Well, they're not doing it the way that they do it with you. Well, yeah, of course, different context, different person, different learning history. So Mm -hmm. please don't do anything different right Now, let us do the heavy lifting on the front end for the first couple months, and then I'm going to bring you in and you're going to see way too much of me and you're going to be sick of me and you're going to take over my position. So I, I think too often, like we are adhering to what insurance wants and we're just getting parents in there to bill just to bill because they have, you know, a contact plan of once a week or two hours minimum a month or whatever it is. However, 
that's not always a good decision. I have a one-year-old who just started treatment with us and his mom just got the diagnosis three months ago. She is still very clearly and objectively defined grieving. She is not ready for parent training yet. If I brought her in, she's not ready for it yet. So I'm going to wait a little bit longer while we get him going. And he has a ton of comorbidities. So we need to be extra delicate about why mom reinforces certain things. Because she watched her one-year-old go through multiple surgeries. He's intellectually and developmentally delayed to that of an eight-month-old. And, and any progress he makes, she's like, hell yeah, as she should. If I handed her a plan and said, you need to stop doing blah, 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 because blah, 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 blah. What a huge defeat. She's already defeated. Don't kick her while she's down. Allow time for us to do the heavy lifting to get him to a certain point where he is capable of learning with mom. And he is at a point where he has learning to learn skills where he can respond to mom doing certain things with him. He's not there yet. So it's, it's like, on a very individualized basis. Do you see or work with a lot of parents whose their identity is almost entirely fused to having a special needs child and they're like, unable to kind of... Proxy? Yes. Yes, yes. Been there, done that several times. It's, it's a tricky and kind of slippery slope and finesse was a really nice word you use. But again, those those opportunities to practice or even hone our skills in those areas are so limited with how supervision and, and grad school is. So I would be curious to see well, how you would suggest people gain experience in that. So people, I'm probably going to get shit for this because people are so high strung with like what insurance wants, but please know insurance, they're payers. We have to play the game to get our kids access yeah, we but we shouldn't cater to them in terms of what we're going to do for treatment. I mean, I bullshit and round about a lot of my goals because they say, "Ooh, you can't target that. Exactly. Like, Are you high? Yes, I can. <laughs> um, but short answer to me, let's take insurance out of it. Say there was a private private pay In a perfect world. Everybody has enough money to private pay. Parent training is what? You're teaching and you're now treating the parent. Right. Not the client. It trickles down to the client. Just like when you're supervising an RBT, the quality trickles down to the client, but you're, you're supervising the RBT. When I'm parent training, I'm treating and I'm training the parent. That's why I say it's highly individualized. It is an artistry. It's a separate scope of practice. In a perfect world, you that's a separate specialty. Because people are doing a lot more harm than good going in there and doing bullshit parent training and they're offending parents. They're putting too much more stress on the parents who are already stressed. They're not being mindful of their learner. They're not being responsive to their learner. When parents are getting up, you need to be fluent at reading body language. Don't sit up straight and lean back. You're projecting I'm bigger than you. Lean forward, get low, be accessible. 
tailor how you talk to the parent to how they're talking to you. So what I would say to that is if you have a parent that's very Munchausen by proxy type behavior or is very much that's their identity, think of it behavior analytically. Labels are labels. You would. My mentor, my grand mentor, so my mentor's mentor, told me while I was being coached by him, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. And this is a clinical psychologist speaking. Doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. Doesn't matter what the label is. Behavior is behavior. Treat the behavior. Take that and behavior reduction for the parent or behavior increase for the parent. Or how about... I had a parent who could not tell the difference between what was sign language and what was stereotypy. So she was reinforcing all of the above, which was making it really muddled for the client to understand, like, what am I supposed to be doing? And then there was scrolling behavior. So I individualized the treatment for the parent. And her only goal was to sit there and watch the technician do therapy. And I would ask her open-ended questions. Is that stereotypy discrimination training? Right. And then if she got it wrong, I would consequate, provide rationale. We would role play. I would get her back in there, ask her again, and get her contact with reinforcement. Your client in that situation is the parent, Mm -hmm. not the child. Yeah. So I think that's a huge, like, if you don't see it through that lens, you're going to be doing a lot of crazy shit. So you mentioned grand mentor and your mentor and based on your experience and you said you're really grateful for your mentorship and, and your supervision. Mm-hmm. You have mentees now. Yes. Did that happen before or after you started ABA mentorship or at the same time? Before. Okay. How long have you had mentees? Training director for like four or five years under my mentor. So um, I didn't hold cases. All I did was consult. I would walk into a room and just go. But I was also in charge of initial progressive training. So I, I never hired RBTs that came from another company. I hired blank slates. People who knew nothing (laughs) and trained them from the ground up. There's a, it's faster that way, honestly. But also, my interview process is very intensive, um, and it probes certain skills before they're even offered, and primes them for expectations. So, you know, there's several times, even in the initial interview, I'll say some stuff, and people are like, "Uh huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that." Because that's what you do in an interview. But the second they get in their whip, they're like, oh, fuck that noise. I'm not doing that. And then we never hear from them again, which is great. I weeded you out. That was my job. Mm -hmm. Right. But it weeds out and it probes for soft skills. And then I I have a working interview where they come and they observe one of my like more seasoned clinicians doing reinforcer development with the client. And I'm pointing out certain things like notice how – Because the client's development, she's not calling his name because he hasn't mastered that skill yet. And we don't want names to be background noise or just like another word. Right. French. We're speaking French is the code word I always use with my trainees. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Speaking French. Um, And they'll be that sick. That basically prompts them to be more specific and clear with their language and bring it down like developmentally. 
So I'll be saying these things on the sidelines and I'll say, oh, notice also how she's play partnering and she's leaning back. She's not touching the client's toys. She's just narrating what the client is doing, like ESDM type stuff. And she, and then I'll throw them in there. Within the first five seconds, I can tell whether they were listening or not. Very easy to tell. Now, sometimes people are nervous and mm -hmm. I, I do leave some space for that. So then the next thing I do is I increase my proximity and I sit on the floor with them and I start to like say things that people with high metacognition, those are the easiest people to teach, um, would instinctively take and just say. Um, so I probe for metacognition and then I start to give them feedback in the moment to see if they can run with it. Within, within those three processes, I can tell whether you'll be fast as a trainee or slow, or if you will have what I call analysis paralysis, where you take one thing and overgeneralize it to everything, which those are the hardest people to teach. Right. Because that rigidity in black and white thinking is one of the most difficult things to soften versus a blank slate where it's like very malleable. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So as your, your role in what you said it was um, the head of training or training director. And then I was, then I took two severe behavior cases and that was okay. when I was under Hanley. Okay. Um, and I was under that for like six months, I think, and mm -hmm. ran the severe behavior clinic. And that's where um, the three like senior mentees that I have now, they were part of the treatment team. Okay. So you met your mentees through your experience with my previous I guess, other, employer. Yeah. With your previous employer. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which is, that's how a lot of us come to find each other. That's, I mean, that's kind of the nature of, of the field. Well, one I, of the mentees, I knew her from the previous, previous. So she's actually, so Kennedy, who you were with us on our, yes. it depends video cast. Mm -hmm. She's been with me for, I think six or seven years. She was actually, when I was wow. in the classroom years and years ago, she was my para pro. Wow. Yeah. So you were a teacher. Yes. Okay. I have a couple questions related to this because I, I don't know if you get a lot of questions about this. I'm sure you do. There are a lot of clinicians wanting to move into more of a training type of role. For me, all I ever wanted to do was teach college courses and, and teach and speak. I really didn't have much interest in the that one-to-one -one therapy itself, but it's also a really important piece to experience if you're going to be a mentor for other people. Mm -hmm. If others want to be or emulate in a role similar to the one that you are in, how exactly would they go about doing so? First step is securing intensive experience-based training and relinquishing titles, credentials, standing, and previous roles held. Within my membership community, if you reach out to me, I make it extremely clear. And there are people that I have declined for mentorship because they refused to have an RBT. Wow. Air quotes again. Um, <laughs> supervise them. And I was like, but please know whether you're an analyst, 
RBT, BT, person off the freaking street. I don't care. Mm -hmm. You all start in the same place and you get performance-based training. So, right. you know, if you're a BCBA and you have five years experience and you come in, you start at the exact same place everybody else does. Mm -hmm. If you're good, you'll progress faster, but that's not right. the case that I typically see. Because of, I'm assuming, limited experience. Yeah. And they're unwilling to relinquish their standing to mm -hmm. get better. So the four letters. Yeah. Something that I've commonly said to people is if I'm giving feedback after our probationary period and I just don't think that it's going to be a good fit and they're not going to make it or mm -hmm. I'm on the fence, something I will typically say is you need to either decide whether you want to remain comfortable and remain the same or be uncomfortable and be brilliant. So mm -hmm. think on that and we'll talk on Monday. Let me know. Um, it, it really is. And if I was somebody who wanted to be a researcher and put this all out there um, again, I think it's so it depends that it wouldn't be able to be quantified um, but something that I've seen from more senior people, air quotes again, is that they are the hardest people to train mm -hmm. and they have the highest rate of saving face behavior I have ever seen in my life. There was a study recently that was looking into groupthink and those that blindly conformed to things and kind of were really difficult to get out of their own little echo chamber. And it was the people with the highest form of education. So those that didn't graduate high school were less likely to go along with the crowd than someone with say a doctorate. And it kind of speaks to your point a little bit, which I find so interesting. Doctorate training because not all doctorates are equal. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Mm -hmm. Especially it's, academia now. It's it, yeah. very narrow. <laughs> you know, you could go to an online um, PhD program and never see anyone else and wipe your ass with that degree. And yeah. great, you're a doctor. Good for mm -hmm. you. What contribution are you going to make though, other than, you know, having a larger salary? Let's talk mm -hmm. about that. Because there's so, a huge portion of special educators going and getting ed D degrees so yes. that they move up in the pay scale. But what contribution are you making? Because you're just part of the bureaucracy that is flushing more money down the toilet and making it so that people leave the public ed sped system at 22, stay with their parents until their parents die or can't take care of them anymore. And then they go on to be wards of the state. So it's like, mm, no, thank you. You can be whatever label you want. I don't care unless your performance backs it up. Yeah. So your mentees now you have four or you're still at four. Um, so there's four seniors that I advertise. Um, there's a whole slew of them that you don't see. Okay. So question about the whole slew that we don't see I and the building. four for that matter. <laughs> I have a building of mentees, one might say. Okay. So the mentees, do you, do they become mentees while you guys are all under one agency setting or can people be a mentee, I guess, under you? without being in the same state, the same building? Absolutely not. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> People reach out to me all the time and I get why because they, they just want mentorship. And I'm like, 
Got to move to Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think there's any possible way that mentorship or supervision with everything moving remote, have you ever seen it work effectively? Remotely? Mm-hmm. No. And that's scary with a lot of things moving into a remote realm. Well, there's a difference between mentor. So. I guess it's also kind of a tricky word that could have a million definitions. Because I mean, just um, zooming in with somebody, I almost said Skype because I'm an old ass, but (laughs) just zooming in with somebody for an hour here and there, that's not mentorship. I agree. It's not. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. just supervision. And I'm curious about the quality, but. Mm-hmm. mentorship is instilled again through that intensive experience-based training, something that we do. So like we trained at autism partnership foundation up in seal beach or mm-hmm. out in seal beach. I'm ge- geographically challenged. Okay. Me too. <laughs> out in seal beach, um, California, they do what's called jumpstart with with kids and it doesn't go through insurance. It's, it's like a separate program within the foundation where like a kid comes in for a week and like four of their most senior, like brilliant people sit, like go back and forth taking turns. And we got to sit in with it. It was really excellent. Oh, interesting. Wish, wish everybody could do it. But basically um, they come up with a plan and then parents come in on the last day and see like, how much progress that kid has made in like one freaking week. And they're just like, holy shit, our kid's been in ABA with this big fast food place for two years. And they weren't capable of doing that to show like the difference between what highly individualized quality ABA can do in a week, let alone Mm -hmm. a year, two years. Now to go back to what we were talking about, my grand mentor was mentored by Lovas. So that's why I take oh, wow. huge account with these people. And they actually worked on the Young Autism Project. So wow. to show the difference in a week is unbelievable. And I wish everybody could see it. Mm-hmm. I My passion is not providing one-on-one therapy. My passion is teaching others to provide high quality one-on-one therapy Mm-hmm. and manage those cases. That's why like, I prefer just like you want to be a mentor. I like mentoring. I love also consulting. I like walking right. into a room, not knowing a fucking thing and just point like, here we go. Let's brainstorm. That's mm-hmm. my bread and butter. But within my company, if you come to work with me, we do the clinician version of what AP does with the client. So we do a mm. clinician jumpstart. So cool. if you saw on our page, uh, Alejandra and Anita were in, they had just completed and we were all like sweaty and we're smiling and stuff like that because it would, for them, they understand what huge accomplishment it was. So mm-hmm. the two of them, plus another trainee who didn't want to be like on the internet, totally understand. Um, <laughs> they were, in a room together, close quarters, two weeks Mm -hmm. straight with all three of them, one-on-one with their clients in a shared space with me and two of the senior mentees that you guys have seen. Mm -hmm. Now we do this for one of two reasons. One, 
there's no room for mistake until we start flexibly prompt fading and teaching you, you know, to, to do a little bit more independently where we can move to Socratic and then two people are out of the room. There's one person in there. Right. And we back off and we pop in for like regular supervisions. The right. other one is to teach them soft skills. So mm -hmm. there's an entire, we call it uh, the clear method where we teach them how to be thoughtful of their colleagues, how to manage their environment, how to over communicate with one another so that there aren't a bunch of women in a friggin' building causing drama um, and to assume positive intent on their colleagues, but more so to decrease burnout through asking for help when you need it because it's available. Um, even if it's not visually available, how are we going to expect our clients to man for something that's not in the room when you can't ask for help if your trainer is not in the room. So we're taking it through that lens is like everything that we apply, teaching is teaching. It doesn't matter if you're doing it with a child or you're doing it with a staff member. So we apply all of that stuff, but we teach soft skills in that first two weeks and they're in close quarters, dude. It's a small fucking room with six or well nine people in it, three kids involved. Cramped. <laughs> and they need to learn to work with each other to not assume the other person's trying to fuck with them or disrespect them. I mean, there was one, one situation where um, somebody cleaned something up that mm -hmm. a person was using for response to joint attention. Mm -hmm. And she was like, Oh, Hey, I, I understand that you were trying to like clean up and limit the field for me, but I was actually using that. So next time I need you to ask me before you move my materials. So we're mm -hmm. using that assertive communication, but we're putting it all out there. Mm -hmm. And then we're Instead talking of like internalizing it. it. Right. Exactly. And then the other person says, I hear that I moved your stuff without asking and that you need me to ask before I move it. Did I get it right? They say, yes, you got it right. All right. I will do that next time for you. And then they thank each other. And like inadvertently, it creates camaraderie, but also you're not sitting there suffering in silence making up some bullshit stories in your head and assuming that everyone's out to fucking get you because this is why I don't have friends that are girls. So it's just, once they get out into the open space within the clinic, they already know how to manage their environment, set expectations. They know how to teach. They know how to embed instruction and they know how to communicate with their colleagues. So it's just healthier for everybody. <laughs> And they could do so without barking up to, let's say, the clinical director, which is also very common it's in the a field. Lot off my plate. No, <laughs> it's a net positive for Amanda. Yes, it is. I mean, if people just put proactive procedure, like if we just applied our science to our staff, we would all be better off. I mean, I agree. if we literally manage a lot of things proactively. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't be putting fires out every five seconds. I can actually relax and leave at 345 to come here and talk to you because I trust that the building's not on fire. And I'm the clinical director yeah. of the entire state of Georgia and that one specific clinic. Wow. And I don't feel bad at all. I know my shit's taken care of. Because you put in all of the work at the front end to ensure that you could reap your free yeah. time and all of these things that you want to do. My busiest week is when I onboard a cohort. Mm. So if I onboard a cohort, that's the busiest week because I'm doing that proactive management. 
And then the mentees who are more senior, who are learning to train and that sort of thing, they take over. I do the initial and oversee the initial jumpstart. Then they take over. And that's part of their unrestricted training. That's uh, the the director of the state of Georgia. That is quite the title. <laughs> well, it's for a company. Like, so all of this goes through a company I work for. Okay. Which is great. You don't hear many companies that allow for this sort of intensive type of. My company. And I mean, you could probably figure out who they are. <laughs> probably. Um, they're still fairly new. They're not private equity, but they, they are big business. But mm-hmm. um, the thing that I respect about them and the reason I chose them is because their model is like they're catering to people that would want to open their own place. So they're essentially like, do you want to be an entrepreneur, but not take the financial risk yourself? So give you your own clinic and they'll bankroll it, but they're not going to micromanage you. They're not going to tell you what to do. They're not going to, I mean, there are a couple of non-negotiables, obviously, but it's still business. Yeah, but it's not, for the most part, they never hear from me. I never hear from them, but are you good? Still alive out there? They see the numbers coming in. I mean, we're doing our job as long as you manage it effectively and, 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 you know, meet the business on the business side. I think that's another thing is that clinicians want to bitch all day about operations but operations is bitching about you too, because you guys are fucking spoiled and entitled. Like, right. And there's no conversation about it. Yeah. You went to grad school for all of two years and, you know, got not even bad supervision. And you want to tell me how to run my business? Like, are you kidding me with this? I think that's also another thing that like, I have a unique experience of is like clinics from the ground up and wearing many hats. I've seen, I've done billing. I've done intake. I've done, you know, I used to do like ADOSs and Mullins and Basque testing under psychologists to like write psychological evals. I've, I've done like literally everything you can do on the business side. So I have huge mad respect for them at the larger scale because they're juggling a lot of shit. You're juggling four cases. Or you're juggling as many cases as you egregiously take. Because you can say that they're pressuring you. Unless they say, I'm pressuring you to take all these cases and you're going to be punished in less, you're pressuring yourself. I think that's another thing that's put out in the media with uh, boundary setting and self-care being such great marketing tactics is that we're almost outsourcing all this responsibility to, like you said, the operations manager, whoever, without realizing we have the license to proceed however we see fit. And just because we feel pressure doesn't necessarily mean that, like you said, someone is putting pressure on us. A lot of it is just our own discomfort with being in these sorts of situations. Well, women just in general aren't good communicators. I know like the feminist community is going to come after me, but they're going to hate us, Amanda. I mean, a majority (laughs) of the issues come from the fact that it's a majority of women in a building together and they just don't know how to assertively communicate. So then everyone starts storytelling and making up shit and then causing drama and people that are in my place, they know if you're the cancer that is creating drama, you will be fired on the spot. I do not fuck around with that bullshit. 
I just don't. It should be more regular. But they, but you know, again, feel so actively speaking, all of that is laid out on the front end. Like, mm -hmm. literally have a list of non-negotiables. There are non-negotiables that you mm -hmm. have no say in. Get over it. Mm -hmm. You are not qualified nor experienced enough to make any calls on this subject. So... Um, my, like one of my non-negotiables is you will not be passive aggressive out here. If I get, a, if I get a whiff of your stink, you're out. Even as business, I'm a business owner and I have non-negotiables and there are things that I cannot change. There are people technically that I have to answer to. That's just the way it is. And to, to play it off as, well, just set really hard boundaries or join a boundary setting burnout group. It's just this very surface level approach to our own issues that we need to address with communication and interpersonal skills. But it's, it's usually, exactly. It's like a you issue. You can't mm -hmm. place that on anybody else. Mm -hmm. You work till nine because you want to. You're a right. people pleaser, as was I. So I don't say mm -hmm. that lightly. That's on you. That is a thousand percent on you. If your boss is texting you at 9 p.m. and you're like, oh, I'm special. Let me text back. And then they keep texting. You can't bitch about your boss now. You are the source of reinforcement. Behavior goes where reinforcement flows, friends. <laughs> Amanda, as we wrap up, the last loaded question that I typically ask everyone, how do we move the needle in this field to a place that is a little more sensical as well as gritty? <laughs> that is a, you know what? I Here's what I'm going to say to that. Because I could give you a 40-hour answer. <laughs> Stop trying to reinvent the wheel. That's mm -hmm. what I'm going to say to that. There are other professions that have already done it mm -hmm. and have the data to support it. Please replicate the surgical situation. Like you get this many hours in general, and then you get this many hours in specialties. We need the board to up the standards. I think it's insane that it's 40 hours of hands-off training for an RBT, and then they pass yes. the easiest test on the face of the fucking planet. And then they may or may not get an analyst who's going to supervise them. Yeah. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing, especially if you have an in-home model where people are going in home and they see their supervisor once a month and they're modeling all this egregious shit and they're ignorant. They don't know. Mm -hmm. they How are they? Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know what you don't know. I can't fault you for that. And the people who are supposed to teach you to know, they may not even know themselves. So it's like, <laughs> it's a silly, silly, I mean... We're laughing, but it's like so not funny. It's, um, not. it's, it's not. really not funny. The direction I see this field taking is if we don't do something, like we don't up the standards, we don't monitor and actually oversee scope of practice and competence. Those are two different things, friends, um, that we're going to be defunded. Why? Because... After so long, 
insurance is going to use all of their fun data, mm-hmm. a longevity study to prove that we are ineffective at improving outcomes. So then what will whether all it's the in our lifetime do? or not, mm-hmm. I see us being defunded if we don't do something different. And by different, I don't mean do better movement. And I don't right. mean all this other bullshit movements. Um, what I mean is actually use the science, up the training standards, up the standard for being somebody who's allowed to train other people. I think it's silly that after a year of certification, you're now allowed to go whatever after eight hours of a bullshit course. Like it's silly just because you watched eight hours of video and most people are skipping through that shit. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you should go take on supervisees. Please stop. I agree. Just because we don't kill people by being ill prepared like surgeons do. You're still like a doctor death to me because you are killing the potential of that person, killing the career of those people that are trying to move up in the field Mm -hmm. and murdering all of the family members and people that are in contact with that client. I cannot say it more seriously. And it is that serious. I think that's not even being excessive or if we want to use the word dramatic, that that really is what we're looking at. And those are grave consequences. These aren't just things like they had a bad day or there's the potential media version of trauma. These are lifelong adverse effects. Individuals on the spectrum go and kill themselves. Individuals on the spectrum who have siblings go on to have mass depression. Parents divorce. People go bankrupt because they have ineffective ABA that's covered by insurance. So they go to fad treatments and pay thousands of dollars to cure their child's autism. It's serious. Like you are ruining lives when you don't know what you're doing. Just because kids aren't dying in front of you because of your work in the long run, you are stifling their outcomes, their personalities, their contributions, their welfare, and the person that they would become. And I don't want anyone to hear that and say, so ABA just forms you into a person that you think they should be? No. As you develop more, as you acquire more skills, you create an identity. I'm not the same person that I was when I was two. Because my mommy made me go to school no matter how much I cried. Or because my teacher said it's mandatory to do X, Y, Z. And if you don't, you get a bad grade. Like there were contingencies in place. And though I cried and or was upset or rebelled or pushed back on it, now I look back and I'm the person that I am today because of it. No, My personality was formed by me and the contingencies that were in place when I was a child and all through up till now. And they, I do not look back and say that was trauma. I look back and say that that built the resilience in me and gave me the tools I need to succeed in my life in a way that, that I want. It instills confidence to try too. It instills confidence to try and be okay with failing. 
because that's the only way you're going to get better. And if we're tiptoeing around kids because it makes us uncomfortable, that's egregious in my book. Amanda, if people really enjoy your point of view and if people want to connect with you, want to work with you in some capacity, or just want to follow your thoughts, where can we find you? You can only find me on Instagram. <laughs> only in one place. Only one place. And I'll Smart. tell you why, because um, I have way too much to do that I have all my thoughts in place for website and all that fun stuff, but I just haven't gotten around to it. It's not my full-time job. I just don't have time. But we we post things here and there, and that's that. So, And people love what you post, including me. So thank you, Amanda, for <laughs> all of your contributions. I really look forward to seeing everything that you continue to do. And I just thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for challenging the status quo and for having a safe space for people that aren't part of that. Of course, we'll continue to to fight this, to die on this hill together. How about that? Yay! <laughs> Woohoo! All right, guys, Amanda with ABA Mentorship. It has been a blast, and we hope that you loved this conversation as much as we did. 